Hello, folks. I am Eric Tenkar. Uh, you are on the RPG Breakfast Club. You might know me from the Tavern Chat podcast and the uh, Tenkar's Tavern blog. Next. Hello, I'm Frank. Uh, up until recently, I was a blogger and made RPG apps, and then I made the leap into indie publishing because why not? I had enough spare time, it seemed. Now I have none. Uh, in fact, minus. But I'm just about to release my first big game, which is Hypertellurians, in two weeks, and that's very exciting. I, uh, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing here. I, my name is Courtney, and uh, I write the blog Hack and Slash, and I stream on Twitch as Akinark Artist. Yeah, you happen to leave, you happen to leave out the fact that you're also uh, pretty well published there, Courtney. Yeah, no, I'm I'm enjoying it. I, I feel like it's going well. Good. Yeah, the, the response from my review of Irie, uh, like it's a, it's I, he said it was good. That's the, like, I know there was a tempest in a teapot there, but, like, like I, I just, I'm still stoked about the fact that he was like, this is quality stuff. And it was. It was it was well worth the praise, and that yeah. praise was well placed. It is, if you're listening, you should go get a copy of Irie the Dread Eye. Well, I got a question for our tavern custodian, Pex. He hasn't already walked away. Is he allowed to talk? He should be allowed to talk, but... And, and if he wasn't allowed to talk, he'd be the one to unmute himself. But apparently he's muted himself, so he can't... Uh... All right, Pex. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a Bronx cheer, but I'll, I'll do it silently because it won't sound very good in the podcast. So since we are basically... Uh, I, I, I guess we're sandboxing today on the podcast or the Fun uh, of Breakfast Club. Seems that way, yeah. All right. Well, as I walk over to my neighboring room, so I already hear my dog whining. Donka, come on down. Daddy will pick you up. You can join the podcast if you stay quiet. Oh, Jesus Christ, dog. All right. Well, there's the Bronx cheer because you just licked me on the mouth. In any case. I'd like to know how you all handle uh, distractions and disruptions in your personal life when it comes to producing material or your videos or your podcasts or your blogs, because I've been going through not really renovation hell, but certainly uh, nonstop renovations now for, or stop and start renovations for a week and a half. And it's been disruptive, especially when you don't have internet for the main part of the day. And um, I know I'm not the only one that has – I'm suffering it right now. But I'm sure I'm not the only one that has, has suffered such. To, so how do you guys work around those disruptions and distractions? I find having a severe mental illness and restricting your contact with other human beings gives you a lot of free time to make dungeons. <laughs> I, I have the problem that my biggest distraction is that thing where I need to go to work in the morning and then come back. It's really taking up an awful lot of time away from my creating. Yeah, I remember when I I had that distraction. Uh, I, regretfully, like, I right now with us, it's it's it's, it's renovations of two rooms, 
And when it comes to contractors, you can talk with them, but you're, you don't start until suddenly they are ready to start with an opening in their schedule. And then as they're going on, things pop up that continue to delay. Like my contractor forgot to uh, check on the flooring when he started the painting to see if it was special order or not. So what should have been started this weekend and if it had, I don't know if I'd be here in this, uh, in this little podcast and the breakfast club because there'd be pounding going on in the background as flooring was being installed. But since he forgot to check in a special order, that'll happen sometime later this week. Just uh, creativity wise, it's one hell of a distraction. I actually think I would have gotten more accomplished this past week if I was still working as opposed to uh, being home with all this work going on around me. I don't know. Do you have the option to go to a coffee shop or something like that, leave someone else behind well, to I have an contractors? Uh, I, I actually have the option to go down to uh, my local pub. I don't have any local coffee shops, but if I go down to a local Even pub, better. which I have, it is. It just doesn't allow for much creativity. It allows for <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, good eats and socialization and a number of beers. Which does lubricate the mind. Don't get me yeah, you're you're going to find more productive people at the coffee shop, though. I, oh, because yeah. they're drinking coffee, right? Yeah, it's caffeine. I could, like just before we kicked off the show, I I, I threw down a five hour energy to get the sleepies out of my out of my head. Yeah, at at, at the pub, you know, people around you were drinking Guinness. Mm. It's a much different, relaxed atmosphere. To actually sort of answer your question a little bit, I've also find it almost impossible to properly deal with the distraction. So I've tried to focus on the other aspect of it, and that's when the creative juices do flow. You know, note it down, write it down, and when, when there's time, try and do as much as much as I can at that point, rather than uh, try and just sort of distribute it and hope that I don't get distracted too much by one thing or another. I mean, as a, as a general rule, I disdain secular activity anyway. Like I don't want to be dealing with my landlord or some insurance bullshit. Oh yeah. I, (laughs) I hate doing this. And I'll be honest with you. Although I love the final results after work like this is done. And uh, my contractor is a friend of my, my my wife. My wife used to room with my contractor's sister in college. So it's a friend of the family. Love dealing with him. He's a great guy. But I hate the disruption of, of two rooms. So right, right now, my, uh, my little home office room is stacked to the brim with boxes and other assorted crap because... It had to go somewhere. And when you have two rooms being worked on, you really can't do a shuffle. you, you got to find other places. Have you considered a divorce and moving into a studio by yourself? <laughs> I think that once this is done, I'll, I'll be happy with it. My wife will be thrilled. Rach, what was my son's bedroom is going to become her yoga room. So, And she doesn't realize it yet, but I'm going to put in a whole thing of uh, cubicle shelving for more of my RPG books. She hasn't realized that yet. But uh, 
he must I, I've, I've realized when I had to condense down two rooms, just how much crap I own and how many books I own and, and going digital in the future is certainly, uh, I like your, I like your secret plan to, to put <laughs> RPG books in shelving that your wife is not aware of. Yeah, I'm going to tell her, oh, I'm going to get more shelving than she can actually. And I know my wife can use a lot of shelving. I mean, she's probably, she could probably see it coming. I got to tell yeah, you. She, she kinda, yeah, no, I'm sure she can. And uh, the yoga room in question, this house was built in like 1905. So it has a, it has a tin ceiling and has a dust shelf going around. And it has, a, 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 I guess, a hutch built into the one wall. So now that, that, that well, the painting is done, it looks top notch and she already has plans for the Dutch shelf and I'm like mm, I already know where I can put I got a wall I can put some shelving won't disrupt any of her yoga but <clears throat> I, and in the end I'm just gonna build it when she's at work and then uh, it'll be there so, and as, as as fascinating as your internal renovation plans are uh, people are asking about 5e in the chat the dying rooms the lethality of the game I, I think that the I think game. that 5e isn't very lethal because people don't like to have their characters die. Yeah, it's also it's quite uh, considering the investment in terms of fan art you get on all the actual plays that you're going to be appearing with your 5e characters. Yeah, you want them to last a little bit longer. Well, that's a carry on from Pathfinder, really. And, and three, what, once you have to map out 20 levels of your character and you're planning it out, you don't want to have that investment uh, unexpectedly end the, the osr you can generate a new character in 10 minutes or less pathfinder god forbid you try to generate a character beyond first level it's going to take you a significant amount of time and 5e2 it's true i i um I, i'm actually playing in a in a pathfinder game this week i hadn't played in a long time it's i forgot i forgot how like you you uh you're pretty tough You're pretty tough, and it's not only that you're tough, but you're accumulating. Uh, Pathfinder to me has the, the built-in fault of the expected uh, Christmas tree ornament. Yeah, how yeah. Oh, there's you accumulate. It, I mean, like there's a list of built-in flaws. Like going back to it, it's like putting on pants that don't fit. You're like, or, or wearing bell bottoms. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a reference to the seventies, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the thing is, what's amazing, though, about, you know, we're talking about 5e, we're talking about Pathfinder. What I find amazing is that Paizo is actually going to start producing content for 5e. Well, right? what choice yeah. do they have to stay active as a publishing house, right? Like, like Pathfinder 2 is not going to do super well. You think so? No. Uh, from what I've heard on the Pathfinder uh, Paizo boards, the uh, feedback on Pathfinder 2 has been very vocal and extremely mixed. Yeah, they're like that. Like, that's a hostile group of people. Though, you know, like, I used to I used to post over there a lot, and, and they're very, you have better, like, every sentence you type better make, like, a verifiable point. People like Pathfinder because they like, like, rules. Um, I, I think it appeals to lawyerly types. Yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I mean, I was originally cautiously optimistic about the second edition when I heard about it, and uh, 
I went ahead and played a game at, I think it was UK Games Expo last year. And by the time I actually got my hands on the character sheet and printed out four pages of character sheet, that, that enthusiasm waned quickly. I mean, you can put out a rule set in four pages. We we did with Swords of Wizardry Light. If you need four pages for, <laughs> when you carry alone, yeah. I mean, that is is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, when it comes to Paizo, you know, the idea that Starfinder initially was going to be their savior uh, income-wise obviously didn't happen. It's not No, failure, yeah. people aren't into success. it. Well, and I've always found this interesting. When it comes to uh, things like movies, we get a lot of science fiction, much more science fiction than we do fantasy. But when it comes to gaming, the most successful RPGs are usually very screwed into the fantasy aspect, and science fiction takes a second second spot. Never and, does as well. It's always no. a smaller audience. And, and Starfinder... It try to hedge that back by being more like a sci fantasy, and I think that that was a wrong bet to take. They they should have gone, I I think more of a Star Warsy type of uh, science fiction aspect than trying to do a crossover game. But they were trying to double up, not not necessarily expand their audience, but uh, double the income from their current audience doing it and. It didn't work. And I think that Pathfinder 2 is releasing earlier than planned because Starfinder didn't numbers. Yeah, yeah. I I heard that same thing. I just feel, I feel that the problem they have is that people that like Pathfinder just want to play Pathfinder. They don't want to play 4E or 5E or some different game that has cards or action slots or whatever they're doing with Pathfinder 2. They just, they just want to have a good zillion character options and traits and stacking bonuses and they want to do that yeah and on the upcoming crowdfunder campaign it's interesting to see that they're throwing in a first edition pathfinder bestiary as an add-on as well as the fifth edition one sorry the dnd one yeah it's quite quite interesting as well so we know you won't like second edition too much or some of you won't switch so please you can still back this yeah yeah well i mean i don't know I, it's like um you know, it's like in any creative field, whether it's video games or writing or whatever else, the sustainability is hard. Like there, there's like mines of interest that you can ride or whatever, but it's, it's hard. And, and like Paizo and Evil Hat and, and places that, you know, they had the product and it sold really well. And now it's kind of on the downturn are facing that kind of challenge. Right. Yeah. I mean, Paizo have been putting out and, and just, an incredible amount of content over the years the just the sheer amount of, of stuff there is in in there and uh, but it's quite interesting i still to this day quite like their setting galarian and everything they've done with yeah it. yeah well I, I think pathfinder's an okay game too like if you're into it i just it, you know i don't know that there's infinite sustainability right like you can't just ride the same project forever if you're if you're a creative field, you're making stuff. Some of them are going to do well, and others aren't, and and they only last so long. Well, yeah, yeah. I just and, have to and, wait. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Frank. 
No, I just want, want to say at least you have to wait one generation because the, what we're seeing now in fifth edition is that the big uh, hardcover books they're bringing up seem to be basically rehashes of all of the old stuff. You know, we've got Ghosts of Saltmarsh. We've had mm -hmm. before. It is all it like, is. Everyone's forgotten, yeah. so we've got new players. So we don't. We can just get away with bringing back the nostalgia for that and, and stuff. Well, yeah, and the nostalgia aspect works because you can. You're, you're going to get the the old school gamers that never went on to five E. You're going to get them buying it because oh, this is my generation stuff, even if it's printed for an, a new edition. And you're going to get the players who have never seen it before, so it's new to them. The investment in it is less because your storylines are already written. You just got to convert the rules to it. The thing with Pathfinder is, is that Pathfinder has been out for an amount of time where I'm sure the core rules are, are not selling. And although the Pathfinder market is huge, I think that third-party publishers are are getting the bulk of those monies now. So like often happens, you're rebooting a system to reboot the income source. Mm -hmm. and and yeah. not necessarily because you need to now. 5e certainly took a huge uh, portion of the Pathfinder 1e players with its success because Pathfinder was a result of 4e coming to the market to keep the 3e players happy because 4e didn't really uh, wasn't the winner with a lot of no, the it was players. just a bad game. Like like you know, I like I know people like to knock on it, but I played and ran it. Like it had strong functional problems. Like there were core inconsistencies that made sitting down to play that game really difficult in a lot of strange ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I ran it for almost two years as well. Really gave it a good shot. But without serious house rules, one session was just one fight, and that was that, really. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's there's a ton of really broken stuff in there that's never been fixed. Like, even today, people are like, well, I guess you could do this with skill challenges. Oh, yeah, skill challenges. Well, you know, 4E was, was presented in an attempt to... Uh, rid us of the OGL to make the OGL irrelevant and to give Wizards of the Coast control back of what they felt was the D and D marketplace. Well, there was and there was they lost it. Yeah, there was there was like tragedy. Like like the plan didn't go up. There was supposed to be a virtual component, like a software component. Uh, there um, was a virtual tabletop, yes, and that whole murder. That, uh, yeah, there was a there was who I'm not going to name because yeah. terrible people don't need to be named. But he he uh, he had, was an ex with one of the other people on the project and stalked her and confronted her and shot her and then himself. And so that was like I guess forty percent of the team heads, and they were like, "Well, we can't go forward with the virtual tabletop now." I mean, just coping with that. And wow. the thing is, the VTT was was already crappy prize that one of the things i still remember from that is when they uh showed off the virtual dice it literally was a clip from the fantasy grounds virtual dice they just, <laughs> they just literally ripped it uh it wasn't even a proof of concept it's hey somebody else did it we'll just use theirs for the proof of concept uh so yeah there was a lot of problems and i think 
4E was supposed to really be tied into that VTT because they were going to do microtransactions with that, with uh, virtual miniatures and such. And that was what they would, they thought was going to be their income source. And it never happened. Yeah. I mean, the, the team that was working on it got, got torn apart and then it just fell apart. And then it wasn't there for the 4E component. And everybody was subscribing to DDI because of the character updates or whatever. Yeah, that was that, and, and it's also the era that killed uh, the print dungeon and Dragon Magazine, and that was a, a damn shame to see those things. Well, I, I think that that was lowering subscriber numbers. I mean, like, I think they were facing the same crisis everybody in the magazine industry faced, which was that nobody's reading magazines anymore, you know? Well, that, and they weren't even, remember, they weren't even publishing those anymore. Paizo was publishing them them under license yeah, so when Paizo broke off to do yeah. its own adventure path and there was nobody to continue you know Wizards of the coast didn't want that responsibility back they didn't want to have to put that yeah, right. print magazine and print magazines uh there they are a hard you know market to get into i mean uh well, what's the, what's the uh i'm trying to think of the app that allows you to read almost every print magazine out there uh on, on your tablet and why carry around uh, Dead Tree if you don't have to? If you carry, you know, the, the Chrome web browser is that the? No, no. There's an actual <laughs> uh, subscription app that you can uh, get that uh, will allow you to, you know, subscribe like six thousand a month, and you get a, an assortment of like. Yeah, I think I know the one you mean, but I can't think of the name right now. <clears throat> I can't either. My wife uses it uh, constantly, so. Yeah. Oh God! I can I can actually picture the graphic on my on the damn uh, on the damn tablet. I can't remember what it's called. I should. Cause I'm the one that pays for the subscription. Jeez. <laughs> I, I would consider it a feature that that they haven't managed to insert their brand into your mind yet. Yeah, that's that's got to be some kind of failure on their end. Or maybe it's just a failure in my end. I'm never great with names anyway, so why would I want to, why would I care what an app is named, I guess? I, I think that you were talking about lethality in the game, which is what started that whole thing. I, I think that yes. um, it doesn't... When, no matter what game you're playing, as you continue to play it, the 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 party as an organism, not each individual, but it... it it grows in strength and it can be deterred a little, you know, you can cut off like part of it by killing a dude or whatever, but in general, um, you become more and more resilient to that as play advances. It, it becomes more and more rare, right? Like any game tends towards away from a tendency to have your random dude die because of their success makes them stronger. Oh yeah. And, uh, as your hit points go up, obviously your survivability and hopefully the players learn, uh, how each of them are and interact as a group so they can plan accordingly. A lot of times as your players get to know each other, their actions uh, are much more coordinated and the party's much more successful. But uh, again, if you're playing Labyrinth Lord and your fifth level character dies and the, your DM tells you roll a new fifth level character, you're probably up and running in 15 minutes. Whereas if you had to do that with Pathfinder, you could be, uh, yeah, the dog is, dog is. You, you have to have, in Pathfinder, you can't just 
create a character, you have to have a plan. It's right. it's very much a thing where you're like, if I needed to take this three levels ago, this is a disaster. Yeah, and and I, if you have to use a flow chart, you're not playing like first edition uh, Gamma World. Um, if you need a flow chart for what your how your game is going to go, your that, that that to me is an issue. That's not first, first edition. To, first edition Gamma World with the the uh, artifacts. Yeah, no, I, I know what you're talking about. It was I've I've run it for quite a bit actually, and it has problems too. Like the character generation in, encompasses a large component of randomness. So some players are like, oh, yeah. I can cast wish every five minutes, and somebody else is like, I can make my finger glow. Yes, <laughs> some disparity there, right? You have to take some control in the character creation to make sure that you're uh, being a little more equitable. Yeah, yeah. It's, if you do it a one shot or whatever, it's fine. But it's hard to sustain a campaign where you know it's like a BMX uh, Bandit and the Angel Summoner. <laughs> well, that and the whole constitution. Your hit points are based on your constitution. So if you have somebody with a low, you know a low con, odds are they're going to be the first to die. You know, it's not like leveling is uh, going to change that that all, uh, all that much. Look, if we're talking about character generation, if you can't die during character generation, then the game's for pussies. Hey, traveler. <laughs> that was, oh man, I used to, I used to cut class to uh, roll traveler characters in the stairwell at my old high school. Uh, Isn't God. there a new, a new uh, box coming out for Traveler? Did I see traveler that? Traveler 5E 5.1 is coming out and I don't know if anybody uh, listening has experience with Traveler 5. Traveler 5 is uh, what was uh, put out by uh, the original uh, game designer of uh, Traveler, and it was a hot mess when it came out. It wasn't... I remember that. Like, it was... Like, people were like, wait, does he... Has anybody read this? Is there a proofreader? I mean, there was... There were tables missing there were rules missing uh it, it was horrible i have it somewhere on disc because i was a backer and uh i think i spent 15 minutes when i got all excited looking at it and didn't get very far before i went this is a fucking hot mess and uh now uh, they're offering the 5.1 rules uh and uh, it's on Kickstarter, and the whole thing is pretty much you pay more to get your ID cards. Yeah, you, you're if you want to be a second officer, it's going to cost you ninety dollars. I, I can't get into it, man. I, you're just asking for money for no value. Well, you're gonna you, the ba- there's a base value of like I don't know thirty dollars for a PDF and sixty dollars for the print plus PDF. But anything beyond that is you uh, becoming a third officer, second officer, first officer. Right. With the ID cards, I guess, to go with it. I, I don't. It, I, I think, I think most serious that. modern traveler play is being done without star, it is being done in stars without number. Oh, I think I, that's I, got the largest like space traveler style development game audience going based on what I pick up from the. Yeah, and I would say that uh, probably uh, 
Mongoose Traveler One slash uh, was it Cerebus? Yeah, Seraph? yeah. Because uh, you know, my I think I, I Mongoose Traveler Two again is an attempt to uh, lock down that OGL. They they put out Traveler, uh, you know, Mongoose Traveler First Edition under the OGL, and the OGL is great for the community, but it isn't always great for the publisher because it allows others to create content uh, under your rules and you're not uh -huh. making money off them. Yeah. You know, which, which again, it's uh, why uh, second edition came out because now Mongoose has got that uh, community uh, thing up on uh, drive-thru, just like the DMs Guild and other companies so they get a, uh, a share of the action for people that publish into their system. Which is great for the publishers, man. You got you do nothing but 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 rake in. Yeah, it, 20%. I mean, like I, I've I've seen that, and I think it's kind of a like a terrible deal, right? Like the the DM skilled rates. It's like they're like um, for no added benefit, you know. Give us complete control of your content, uh, and you know, let us give you less of a percentage than you can get if you did this individually. In exchange right. for you get the stamp of like the little stamp, you get to use the little uh, approved by Nintendo seal of approval. And a few names. Right. Because you get to use certain closed IP or P or product or PI product identity, whatever you can yeah. write in. That's fair. That's fair. You do get access to their IP that you can use in your product. It's true. Right. But you're, if you're serious about, writing, let alone uh, making your way and making profits off your work, you're taking a huge cut because if before you were getting, uh, what is it, uh, 65 to 70% of the cover price? It is. That is it, yeah. 65%. Uh, now, right. If you're not exclusive, 70 uh, if you are exclusive. Correct. Um. But now if you're under one of these community programs, the publisher whose work you are building off of gets usually 20%. So now you're stuck with half. So yeah, I just saw how much lower it was, and it was like several orders of magnitude. And I was like, yeah. no. Now, if it were if it were 3%, I would consider it. But it's something, it's like 20, 25, 30, it, something it, crazy. Usually, that they yeah. Have. Yeah, and I think they can set their own percentage. Um, I've, I've actually spoken with, uh, another publisher that was looking to do such, but they they don't, the, the, their cut, they didn't want a huge cut. And I don't even know if drive through will allow, uh, a publisher to take a much smaller cut because then it kind of throws the balance out with the other publishers yeah btr says who wants to play and write in favor in any out yeah you can obviously tell my my innate uh i want i don't want to say disgust but just complete dismissal of the value of their ip i mean i think i think all of us that are in this community are the kind of we're in the position of gary's why let anybody else do any more of your imagining for you right like we're, we're not concerned about uh, their intellectual property, we've, we can come up with our own. We, I can, you know, right. I can call it a displacer beast at my table. Like nobody's going to come to my house and knock the books out of my hands. Yeah, how, I mean, the, the interesting you? about Farron is that you're, you're tapping into uh, sort of a, a 
communally imagined and a world that's been carried for a while. So I guess for those people who, who play in that world, that makes sense and gives them sort of a sense of belonging. But I mean, I'm exactly the same. I think I would die of boredom if I'd have to write uh, about Faerun or anything like that. Um, that said, back in the day, I used to love the um, the articles in Dragon Magazine that there was the ecology bits because they were quite fun. But that's a long time. Yes. Ago. Oh, they're good. They're, those are brilliant. I'm sorry. Yes, I agree. Yes. No, those those were great. I, I didn't mean to interrupt Frank. I just those are some of my favorite articles from the old Dragon. There's mm. continuous characters. Like individual writers would create groups of people and they would appear in the fiction over and over and over again. Yeah. I just, I just feel like over time now, this world is so vast that it's had all of the edges um, grinded off and it's just it's just too bland for, for, for me and for, certainly for the people at my table. Well, and I didn't mean to be so negative, but some of it is my appealing... Like, I love Ed Greenwood, but his campaign writing tends to be super... Um, railroady, you know, he, he's the kind of person who's like a ghost makes them go on the adventure because if they don't, they have to. <laughs> and that works for a lot of people, you know, and because you have groups, especially newer groups or people who aren't so experienced, they like a little bit more um, guidance as to where to go for to find adventure and stuff. And then, of course, you've got at the other end, you've got your sandbox players that want nothing more than just to look over there in that box where they know that the GM hasn't prepared anything for. Well, you know, and part of the problem with, with using a setting like the Forgotten Realms is that there's so much history written into it. And God forbid you have a player at your table who actually is one of those like, you know, fictitious history historians who now you strayed off of the path and you've gone in a different direction and they, and they correct you. I, I had that happen way back when I ran that for second edition. And I was like, really? I mean, if that's the case, do you want to run the sessions? I'll sit back and I'll be a player. Uh, I never had that problem with Greyhawk because Greyhawk was usually so lightly written. Well, Janelle was that first book was so good that she did, um, really fantastic. Which book was that? The the Greyhawk one that had um, like the 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 pages of uh, like plot threads, just the with with the activities. Ah, uh, okay. I think that must have passed me by. That's quite, quite old now. But just going back to uh, Eric's point there about um, the, the giant history of the world, that is something that is quite um, intimidating as well to GM. It certainly is to me, and part of the reason why I've never played Star Wars, because I know some of the people I game with know the Star Wars expanded uh, world, uh, like their back pocket, and I would not be able to sort of answer their questions. And the same is true also with, with, with Faerun and Forgotten Realms. There's, you know, I know a fair about, about sorry, I know a fair a, amount about it. Those are the words, that's the order. Um, but still, um, I, don't, I don't know all the intricacies. I haven't read all of the books. And uh, so it's just, it's just a little bit too much to know, to, to know if you really want to lean into, into that side of it. Yeah, that's why I prefer settings that are uh, a little looser, or at least where you can find all the information 
in one spot. Uh, Forgotten Realms, you have to have uh, a, a vast catalog of Forgotten Realms releases to have that knowledge. And uh, I don't have my that my too much time to invest in something that is only going to interest your players briefly. I don't I, I don't yeah. need that. And it's much it's much nicer, I think, that if you do the world building together as you know, as you play, you shape the story, you shape the world. It's more satisfying in the long term, I think. Yeah, I mean I, I like the second edition Grey Box for Forgotten Realms. It had just enough information on everything so you could you know uh, detail it out a bit yourself it had some decent hooks for adventure ideas once the third edition book came out the third edition book is a beautiful book physically but too too much too too more more than i needed especially for a setting that was already uh i guess established and i guess third edition had a had a retcon it again just like uh I guess uh, the gray box, you know, I don't know. Settings are a different, a difficult thing for me, I, I think, because we all run the same setting a little bit differently. We go into it with different expectations. And if your players have different expectations than you for an established setting, it, it, can, it can be rough. It can be rough on the, uh, on the game. Yeah. So between uh, between Courtney and you, what sort of settings do you play in most? <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, when I've run stuff uh, for Swords and Wizardry, it was you know Lost Lands, which is the Frog God setting because I've been running some Frog God uh, pieces, but it was very localized. I didn't have to worry about the larger setting; it was just the local areas and. When I came back to gaming as a GM, I had GMs in about 10 years, and then I started running games on on, on VTTs. I came black, back with uh, Rob Conley's Black Marsh. And to me, that was the perfect setting to come back with just large enough, just detailed enough, but not overwhelming. It's about 32 pages. Really, what more do you need to run a sandbox? Yeah, I, uh, earlier I was said something about a genealogy casebook. I must have imagined it or been part of a different universe because I just checked the bibliography and it's not her. She wasn't the author. Um, so I apologize for that. That's okay. Uh, you know, Janelle was very prolific. Uh, when, yeah, when I just imagined it i guess uh but her work is great uh, I, I was thinking about the the greenwood second guide um in the box set for forgotten realms where he has the list of events that happen and mm -hmm. they've starred some of them for future development that was very useful very early but then later on as it got more railroady yeah and you know what and railroady uh, i i Personally, I, I think as your game systems get more detailed, it is more likely that published adventures are going to get more railroady because all, all these rules are spelled out that you have to make sure your adventure complies with. I think that early adventures were, in general, uh, a bit more loosey-goosey. 
because the rules were more loosey goosey. You didn't have as many things to find. Yeah, I just want to say, Laramie, it, it's not that. I just have a bad memory, I think, is really what we're dealing with here. I think that's a community of people uh, that just want to not feel like they have bad memories. I mean, so that's a gonna... thing that a time uh, agent would say, though. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 so this isn't man in, the, man in the High Castle, then, right? It's super it's paranoid, of... guys. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't watching. That's right. Although I will say the uh, something like Man in a High Castle, if, if you had a concept like that uh, stacked on top of a setting like Forgotten Realms or, or Greyhawk, the uh, opportunities would abound to really mess with your players. Well, that's that's the Elder Scrolls series. I don't know what you guys know about the lore in the Elder Scrolls series, but um, like the whole thing is a dream, and every time a game happens, there's a dragon break where there's a bunch of different realities that all occur and are all true at the same time. I had no idea, and I've been playing that. Oh my god! Since, yeah, uh, like some of the some of the deep lore is crazy town. Uh, there's a couple. Uh, Kirk McBride wrote uh, several additional books, like non non game related, like literary works about the universe and the different phases of its development of the Elder Scrolls, and it's some surreal psychedelic stuff. It's really out there. I was not aware of that either, and I've played pretty much often, certainly since Morrowind. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and the games are the games are focused around the major things, right? Like like uh, the the loss of the towers and the uh, Thalmor, like the Thalmor trying to destroy the world, and like different areas on the planet are like the other continents. One of them's in the past, and one of them's in the future. Like if you were to sail to the other continent, it's supposed to be Tamriel in the in the future. Uh, and if you go back the other way, it's supposed to be in the past. There's some, it's very interesting if you're into that kind of stuff. Hmm. I'm not making this up. You could go Google uh, no, no, the, the Elder Scrolls Wiki. It's it's very interesting. I always, I always found the sort of the Elder Scrolls lore a little sort of background dressing in a way, and it never sort of spoke to me so much. But after hearing that. That's the whole the whole stuff in a whole new light. Yeah, yeah. I'm realizing to myself that I must have played the first Elder Scrolls game. What was that? Back in Arena? 90- Daggerfall? Daggerfall. Is that 94, 95? Uh, Arena was more a traditional style where you had an adventure, but Daggerfall was their first randomly generated one, and it was a hot mess, but it was a lot of fun. I remember me and my brother playing it, and we would take an elf that had like an aversion or a terror of elves, and then we would run in front of a mirror and then pretend to be scared. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. See, now that sounds like a setting that would fit very well into, uh, you know, D&D or the OSR. Yeah, well, it's his, it's his, I think, D&D system, right? His game. It comes from right. McBride's experiences with early D&D, Palladium-ish. Oh, that, that explains a lot right there. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like Palladium fantasy, but not for the rules. I like it for the setting. I mean, like, I, I yeah, Palladium, huh? <laughs> Talking about hot messes. 
But uh, the setting material with Palladium is, is, even if it's over the top, it's certainly enjoyable. It's just that there hasn't been a, you know, the, the, the core default system is horribly broken, in my opinion. So. But I guess Palladium Fantasy itself was pretty much a, a hack of earlier D&D. Yeah, it's Simbata's. It's Simbata's game. Like, I, I'm not trying to knock. I, I mean, like, I, I really like anything that's produced with just a consistent artist aesthetic, right? Like, he has a vision yep. for Palladium. And, like, right, fuck anybody if they're not on board with that, right? Like, he's making the Palladium books. If you don't like, if you don't like, it's just Kevin... Personally, like as an individual, um, does a lot himself to inhibit the growth of the line. And you can't produce 40,000 pages of content without repeating yourself a little bit. Um, you can definitely yeah. tell he keeps trying to make each thing bigger and better. And so, like, it's very idiosyncratic, which is great. Um, like, I'm not trying to knock on it, but you're right. Like, running it, you kind of just have to make it your own thing and, and answer all the questions that it gives you. And don't let players manipulate the character creation process to get 90,000 skill points okay. by taking athletics and then working out or whatever the combination is that breaks character creation. Yeah, I, I kind of remember that from Riffs. It's like, so taking this is going to give me more attacks with my railgun? But it's a fit. Yeah. All right. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some, there's some degenerate you can take uh, background for the strength points, and it gives you more strength points, and you can just do it till, like, you max out your stuff. Like, there's a couple stupid tricks like that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I never ran riffs. I played in the riffs campaign for I don't know, good two, two and a half years because. The one Gen Con we went to is where we found uh, the Rifts books and got to talk with uh, uh, Kevin Sambita and uh, Kevin Long, and I got my book signed. It was it was great. But uh, when we actually started playing it, we realized that it was pretty much house ruling on the fly to keep things moving. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and and, and BTR says a couple of things here. He says Rift setting was really cool. Like everything Kevin thinks of is really cool. That's the great part about it, right? The aesthetic and the the thoughts he has, and and like that's what makes it cool. That's why people are still buying it. It's really it's really radical. The other thing he says uh, that the books in Oblivion were kind of like fan literature, and I just want you to know, dude, all literature is fan literature. There's no arbitrator of like authenticity for writers. Yeah, the market decides. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if you if you're fan fiction, it, man, even if it's on right. the New York Times bestseller list. If your book sells and makes you any kind of money, guess what? You're a published author. Yeah, no kidding. So good. Sorry, I've been a bit quiet about the Palladium discussion, but I don't have an awful lot of experience with, with that that line. So. Yeah, Kevin just has trouble paying his bills. You know, treating people like human. He, like he's obviously got issues, like because that's the delay for a lot of the newer stuff, and why Palladium hasn't done a lot in the recent resurgence. I was surprised when I started selling uh, PDFs on uh, Drive Through, because Kevin likes. I know, right? Control. Yeah, yeah, that was a money decision. Yeah, you you know that's what was driving his 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 thinking there. Yeah, I, I still remember the great betrayal 
when uh, what was it? The accountant or the like, like, like stole all of Palladium's money. Yeah, I'm. I'm unclear. I, like, I have. I, I don't have the facts for that right at hand, do, but it was definitely like, I don't want to speak out of turn, but that was what was going on. Like there was some breakdowns in long-term relationships from that. Yeah. Yeah. What do we think about catalyst um, trying to write their sinking ship full of thieves by releasing Shadowrun sixth edition? I mean, I don't know how Shadowrun can be in a sixth edition when D and D well, D&D 5th edition really isn't the 5th edition anyway, but um, I, I just, I, I can't believe there's that many editions of Shadowrun. I, I had the first, and that was it. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to, I don't know if it's going to save that, that ship. No, I, I, I think Catalyst is, is just Randall Bills. They, they're very, like, I've written about it before. I do have the facts on that. They embezzled, like, a million dollars. Um, didn't pay their writers, you know, and then they decided that they weren't going to do anything because uh, they said Randall Bills was a really good Christian, so he could just steal that money and there wouldn't be any consequences. Um, but it, it, the thing about the Shadowrun editions is they're always, it's from first to third edition were cyberpunk from the 1980s, right? But then the idea of the future changed. Like Like fourth edition deals with, like uh, AR, augmented reality, a lot more than this concept of VR. And then they they moved. So like the world changes, right? Like the 1980s material was all about malls in the future. And now the new material is focused more on like more modern issues, like corporate states and stuff like that. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, products or ideas becoming or sort of staying futuristic by putting 2000 after the name back in the 70s or the 80s when that seemed mm -hmm. a very long time away <laughs> twilight 2000 oh. yeah but like the the concept of cyberpunk changes as the future our concept of the future changes right yeah, absolutely. like yeah. before we imagined everything would be vr and now we're seeing that no it's pokemon go it's when you hold your phone up and you see the augmented thing and so then they moved yeah. it forward to that. I mean, that's something that annoys well, me like about all sorts of contemporary sci-fi at the moment. You, 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 you watch like an imagination of the future where you have spaceships and whatnots, and they have giant buttons or they have blinking this and that. So many, <laughs> so many controls. And then you, th you look at us now, just look at our phones, you know, the fewer buttons, the, 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 the slicker, the cleaner, or always those green, um, the, the, the green screens coming back from the Hercules monitors of back in the day and, and oh, yeah, and all the noise and the interruptions. I mean, look at our Skype conversations now. It's like, come on, yeah, the program. Yeah, I mean, that was like, like, that was the thing that in fifth edition is that you could do the Matrix stuff wirelessly now. Because, like, all the older books, you know, back in the day or whatever, all the computer oh, yeah, stuff was wired. Yeah. And now, right. Yeah, everything's wireless. So, they're like, oh, that's happening in 20, you know, 75, too. That's exactly what's going on there. Wireless technology. <laughs> Look at uh, Traveler First Edition from uh, Game Designer Workshop. How big were those computers and those, uh, those spaceships? Space yeah. Pretty much all computer with a little living space. Old science fiction is so great. Like Lensman, I think they travel across the universe using um, a 32-piston diesel engine. Like like the old science fiction stuff is so good. Nice. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's nice. That's quaint and interesting, and it's got its own charm and everything. But but when you see sort of modern sci-fi things that's created now, and and even then the sort of the technology that they picked there from the future is like worse than the technology we have now. I mean, games video yeah, games yeah. are really bad for that too. Any more? Like if I see another interface in in a sort of sci-fi game that's all just it's, it's rectangles, but with the edges sheared off. And it's like, oh my god, is that, is that really all you can think of? <laughs> Sorry, ran over. No, no, that's exactly oh. it. I was, I was trying to remember specifically. There was a whole episode devoted to some science fiction show where the paper, the corners cut off. It was in Babylon 5. And they were, he was like, or, or uh, no, Battlestar Galactica. Like all the all the paper had like the right and left. Yeah, you remember? And so I was like trying to remember what that was from, but that was a thing. It was just different. Like they cut the paper and they're like, it's different. Like who cuts a paper that way, right? It's but it's the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But even like if you look at your Andromeda, so your Mass Effect uh, video games, all of those interfaces, they're sort of semi 3 d ness but always with, this, with these weird 45 degree angles and everything for some reason that's, yeah. I think in many ways, then it, it is it is easier to go back to the quaintness. And I mean, if you look at uh, Space Odyssey, all of the monitors and that are these ginormous CRT monitors and stuff. And you well, can accept I, that because it, it's just we know that was done a long time ago. Reality is reality is just terrible. Like I I wrote a. a, a I never published, but I, I've written a space game before and done a lot of research for it. And the and like the real fact is, is that the most deadly weapon you can have is a rock. Like if you can travel through space at a at a distance that's relative, then there's nothing more deadly than a rock that you just sort of push at somebody else's planet. Like you, you, there's no space battles. Like you just know everybody is at all times because space is so empty; it's impossible to not be detected. And then, um, like it. it interacting in, in direct combat with anybody is just absurd because it's so much easier to get an asteroid up to near relativistic speeds right outside their solar system and blow up anything in it. You know, just, you could do that with a rocket. You don't need like special science fiction. Constant acceleration uh, is pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, considering interstellar speeds. You don't, you don't lose any momentum. You know, you get it up to some point. Unless it gets into gravity, well, that's it. It's just going to keep going at that momentum. Yeah, and your idea is that you're pointing it at the gravity, well, it's going to hit. You know, like, and it's not expensive to do. You know, rocks are super common. Like, so the idea of a space game is that unless you just, it's got to be fantasy. Like, there's no, like, a lot of the tropes uh, for, for space and, fan, you know, you just, you've got to adjust it because if you just go hard science, it's going to be a character drama on a moon. You know, there's not going to be any yeah. space combat. Yeah, that, that's something actually. I watched a YouTube video recently that uh, talked a, a bit about space battles as well. And, and in reality, you know, the, it would be actually much, much, make much more sense to use projectile weapons than, than, than lasers potentially. And yeah. Stuff like that. And yeah. The, the scary thing, imagine you, you had someone who shot like a. Um, a bunch of projectiles, like hundreds of projectiles, like a, like a, a semi-automatic or whatever, into space. And, uh, you know, they'll just keep going forever. And, yes, the chances yeah. of them ever hitting anything is, is, is infinitesimal. But I can also imagine the show where just people sort of wandering around on a random planet and <laughs> 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 27 light years away. 
Uh, I mean, it's crazy. It's absurd. Like watching Star Wars, what they shoot the thing at the ship, which then turns into a robot. I'm like, in every single case, it's better just to have the projectile damage than a theoretical robot attacking somebody's ship. Like, you just want to put the solid object through their cruiser or whatever. So you're telling me that, like, Star Trek Discovery, you know, that, those battles are just not realistic. Oh, I was already thinking that to myself, but hey. Yeah, that's the thing. Why would you ever be so close to anyone in space? I mean, there's absolutely no reason. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you gotta you gotta suspend all that disbelief and just be like, we're gonna have World War Two style space battles. This is what we're doing. Yeah. And 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 this this is also why I'm such a big fan of the sort of the retro sci-fi aesthetic because we knew that they didn't really know what they were doing back then. So it's 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 easier to get to get along with it. So well, I think there's been doing, a, I mean, just been a, the science behind it all, and and the budgets, some of it married with budgets. Honor Harrington. I, I think the idea behind um, Honor Harrington is the the sci-fi version, Bayon's sci-fi version of uh, Horatio Hornblower. I think the fan of the sort of uh, type of military-ish hard sci-fi has always been there. I think it's just now that they have a they have a genre for them. You know what I'm saying? It was around when it was Horatio Hornblower, and they were obsessing about the like it, it, space is essentially a naval story right yeah i mean fewer yeah. stories i guess or very different types three-dimensional but yeah so i i think that audience for that type of tale has always been there and i think it's different than than fantasy in that aspect right like like space stories about exploring like a, a sea like a new you know like in that sense and fantasies are about like uh delving into the interior of a land and I guess your own psychology generally. That's the irony of it all. You go into something as in, incredibly vast as space and your stories become much, much smaller and much more looking into the small people You're on the ship for like, I don't know, 90 years if you're trying to get someone. Brandon. So I had no, I wasn't, I had no idea where I was going with that. Actually, one thing I wanted to no, say. No, I, I appreciate it. I was working real hard to kill the conversation myself. Um, <laughs> I, I just like there's when you're when you're dealing with sci-fi, it tends to be more about um, futuristic representations of current social issues, uh, whereas you're dealing with fantasy, it tends to be more about um, like psychological ones. Hmm. I mean, thematically, like just when you use those as forms of fiction, that tends to be what they examine. Yeah, it's true. I think it's actually very. Sorry. Well, I, I, I'm, well, I mean, that's my job, right, Eric? No, no. But you're right. <laughs> There's a lot of things I haven't thought about that would probably occur to you real fast in a in a conflict <laughs> situation. <laughs> See, I, I succeeded, I guess. I, no, I, didn't. I, I failed, and, and then Frank was like, well, I also rolled a 13 and didn't hit, and then I was like, no, I got this. And then I killed the conversation with a straight so I had, 20. I had I come back to something that Eric said, but so long ago now that I would have lost all impact. 
No, tell us, share, please. Please, please do. No, no, so you were talking, uh, Eric, except three-dimensional, to which I was going to quip back or 11 or to 14 dimensions, depending on which string theory or M theory you subscribe to. Badoosh. Oh. So now, now, now we are getting more Star Trek. Well, I mean, that's because we brought it up. By the way, if you guys haven't seen the Orville, I know you mentioned Discovery, but yeah. like my Star yeah, Trek right. is about people in courtrooms and sitting in boardrooms deciding what to do about stuff. The, the mo I don't know what they're doing with Discovery, but I know that when I'm watching the Orville, they're sitting in courtrooms and like the ship's cabin with the meeting and everybody's at the big long table and they have the discussion about what they're going to do about this fucked up situation. Oh yeah, I've caught the Orville. I actually, I haven't. I don't think I've caught more than the first two episodes of this season. I'll have to go to Fox on Demand and. Uh, yeah, that's how I watch it too. Up. That's how I watch yeah, it too. Uh, I, I don't uh, normally watch anything with advertisements, but they're on Fox on Demand, and it is aggressively invasive. Like those people want to. They they are. They're so aggressive about making you try and pay attention to whatever they're talking about with their advertisements. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, the reason I haven't seen the new season either. Yeah, because here it's only available in on sort of not quite terrestrial, but it's like basically regular TV. And I only watch like Netflix or Prime these days. I, it's yeah, a whole lot yeah, of workflow yeah. in order to to turn on my whatever cable box is, and I, I can't even remember where the remote is. Well, I mean, it's obvious uh, Seth MacFarlane was just like, look, I loved Star Trek, and I'm going to make a Star Trek with Blackjack and Hookers, because whatever you're doing with the license isn't it. Um, and it's good, if you like that kind of stuff. I was a Next Generation oh, fan, and it is just, like, it, all the Next Generation people guest star in it, like, some of them direct episodes, like, it's good stuff. Yeah, I was super no. surprised when I watched the first season, actually, because I expected it to be just a straight-up comedy, yeah. really. Uh, well, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm well down with shit stuff. I have a ginormous B-movie collection. But uh, but no, it was really good. It immediately from the get-go tackled sort of sensitive topics, and uh, it did so. It's a character well drama that really built. And, yeah, yeah, they built up everybody's character. There's a lot of character humor with the beats and the personality. It's well-written. The guest stars are out of this world. Uh, the the world development, seeing it happen in real time, like it's super fun. Like, you know how some things are going to be different than Star Trek and some things are the same and figuring that out as you watch is just cool. Like how fast is the ship and what does the galaxy look like? That world building stuff is awesome. Yeah, and they, and they don't forget to, to make it fun because sometimes you just have a, a retort from uh, from Captain going like, ah, oh, well, shit. And stuff like uh, yeah, that that you would yeah. never have in Star Trek. <laughs> well, and they get better at it too. They they become more character moments and less quips because like it feels a little out of place at first, but then they tie the thing that people are saying into who the character is, and it, it 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 you know like I just like Star Trek, and it's you know more Star Trek. It's more yeah. Star Trek than Discovery, that's for sure. Because Discovery is under like, the license for Discovery is a. There's like they have to be at least twenty five percent or something like that off of the original uh, uh, presentation of Star Trek. So the uniform, the Klingon look, and all that other stuff has to be a certain uh, off kilter from what you expect from the original series and Next Generation. And uh, it, it's just a weird license. So it's Star Trek, but not Star Trek. 
just uh, sort of about to be more Star Trek than the original Star Trek. It reminds me also of um, the Kingsman. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, oh, I have, yeah. Kingsman 1 and 2, that's sort of more James Bond than James Bond. It's, it's really fun as well. Well, I think everybody has to reimagine. Like, I, you know, I'm getting old. Like, we all are, right? You're looking around and you're like, well, things are not the way they were when I was, you know. And yeah. so I, I think a part of that is that everybody, they have to reimagine things for my own generation. Because the themes, the relevancy is like, it's just different. It's like, if you tried to publish the original 80s Shadowrun now to kids, they wouldn't even understand why anything in the game was oh. away. Like, why, why are there malls? Like, they just don't understand the importance of malls. They wouldn't have any idea. Wait, do kids no longer hang out in malls? No, the malls don't exist anymore, dude. Amazon killed them. No, they still exist, but they are. A lot, of, a, a lot of the ones, especially the ones that are not in heavily trafficked urban areas, are, are, are dying off. They're withering on the vine. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I just, I played a lot of Shadowrun 3rd Edition, and a significant amount of the adventures and conflict comes around because of issues that occur in malls uh, by people who are mall owners. They, they, they had believed that malls were going to be very popular in the future of 2050. It's interesting. I, I malls like here in Berlin. There's a lot of quite big malls, but I don't really go into them that much because they don't. Like you never discover that one really crazy weird shop in them. Like uh, I mean, there's one mall here which has a games workshop in them, so that's cool. And another one, and actually the same one, it's got a comic store in them. But that's almost like most of the time it's just brand clothing. Well, I, yeah. I, they're talking about like what malls you can buy. There's you can buy guns in a mall here. I'm in Arkansas. You gotta be in the right mall. <laughs> well, I mean, here it's any of them. Like they, we have firearms. And we're very fond of them. Yeah, it's true. I was in Anaheim in the mall there a long time ago, and uh, I bought a set of throwing knives because I'd just seen Salma Hayek in uh, Once Upon a Time in in the old west or something like that I think. yeah desperado right? yeah yeah it's the third one in that in that series yeah she, first of all those those movies are great and she's beautiful nobody who who was who isn't alive like people can't communicate about the past right like there's no way there's no way we'll ever be able to let other people know how just how big ninjas were in the 80s so true like everybody owned throwing stars and nunchucks and stuff. Like you can't ever communicate that to anybody else. And it's like that with oh, the yeah. run in the mall thing. Like it's every adventure is about like mall politics. And you're like, malls just did not turn out to be that big of a cultural impact like 50 years later. And the funny thing about throwing stars and nunchucks in New York City, you had to go to like the back of like a barber shop that didn't really barber anybody, but in the back is where they were selling all these prohibited items and weapons. And it was just like, once you knew about it as like a 14 year old, it was really dangerous. I mean, I can't even imagine the cultural differences between like, we never had a Bernie gets between, right. between Arkansas and New York. 
like like your culture is so it's got to be so different than what it's like down here because i'm pretty sure i can find shuriken on the ground outside <laughs> oh please not here now, I mean, I grew up in Luxembourg. now you can order them on, online so what's the difference right what was yeah. what are you saying frank no i mean i i grew up in luxembourg there was no such thing as a gun shop or weapon shop if i wanted to get anything like that like the, the nunchucks i make myself the shuriken i think over the years i collected one or two from uh, like carnivals so they had carnivals where you shoot some things and then you get some some stuff and they sometimes had things like shuriken or katanas and stuff and so i spent all my money on trying to get this <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, it is it is different because I remember being seven years old and, and running around with my friend over at his house, both of us with, with like, rifles, like, 22s. Like, it's just, like, they're available. That was one of the things you did with your friends is you ran around the woods and you shot guns. Yeah. I mean, we shot bows that we made ourselves because we could... Buy yeah, we did archery, guns. too. Yeah, absolutely. There was a... Well, I was just yeah, saying, right, this Oh yeah. The nunchucks being illegal is kind of weird as well because there are two sticks with a chain, or in some cases, just a. That stick. just happened in New York, though, right? Didn't they legalize nunchucks or something? Uh, I don't know. I know there was a ruling uh, in the federal district upstate legalizing uh, tasers. I was surprised by that. But I don't know about nunchucks. I mean, we just let everybody at each other here, right? Like, everybody's got to just assume that they can arm themselves. It's not like that in New York, and though, that, right? No, it isn't. Uh, and New York is, a you know, just like other, other states like New York. New York is huge. So downstate, you're probably not going to be able to get a, a carry permit for a firearm concealed carry permit uh but upstate like they give it away like candy right so, oh right no i mean that there's socioeconomic factors there too also i was thinking about the fact that like our entire state has about two million people i'm pretty sure like new york itself probably has a borough that has a million people right i think uh queen is like three million yeah so like i i think it helps if you have a big like we're in the backyard like, it doesn't matter so much. We don't have to worry. Like, our neighbors are, you know, it's very rural in Arkansas is what I'm saying. Yeah. New York, uh, it, it's, it's. I, I guess New York and Pennsylvania, the, uh, generally speaking, the local sheriff is the one that issues permits. So, again, if you happen to know your, your local sheriff, I guess getting a permit is not that hard. Uh, if you don't and you're not fully connected, it's hard. New York City, it's hard if you're not a retired cop. And even as a retired <laughs> cop, like I, as a retired cop, I, I have to renew every three years anyway. And yeah. if you're not a retired cop, it's it's like a $350 fee every three years. So, I mean, they're, they're also trying to price it out of people too. They're talking about the origin of the nunchucks in chat and how it came from a threshing implement. Andrew's so smart. He has so many facts. Uh, the, the, the thing is, though, is that it's not a very useful weapon. It's a terrible idea for a weapon, but I don't think the people who used it as a weapon had much choice, right? That was what they had. 
Well, I, I think a lot of martial arts weapons have their uh, origins in items that were used in the field or used in the smithy or whatever. The, the people. Well, I mean, speaking of like weapon control, like Japan outlawed sword carrying guns, you know, citizens can't have weapons. And right. so I think that that was the development of a lot of that. It's, how, it's what an armed citizenry can do effectively right. with like farm implements. Yeah. And if you can have a farm implement and turn it into an effective weapon, so much the better. Yeah, and and they they look a lot less conspicuous as well. Right. But yeah, I, I agree with Courtney about nunchucks being terrible weapons. When I was young, I was doing a lot of uh, jiu-jitsu, oh, sorry, ninjutsu, and uh, just practicing on myself by myself with the nunchucks. I've hurt myself with that more so than with any other weapon. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just a terrible plan. We're gonna have one stick. We're gonna hold. Another one is gonna flop around. <laughs> they just can't know if they weren't here like how big ninjas were i mean like i didn't go to school there wasn't a day where there weren't conversations for like a whole year like all of 1982 was just there's nobody was talking about anything else but ninjas every day well you know and part of that reason at least in new york city is the 4.30 movie on Channel 7 was either uh, a Godzilla or some other uh, Japanese monster movie or it was a Kung Fu movie. Pretty much guaranteed. So that was Monday through Friday. You had these, these movies being played constantly. If you were a kid coming home from school uh, as you're doing your homework, waiting for dinner, there you are watching some Bruce Lee movie or something that's even worse than a Bruce Lee movie where everybody's using nunchucks and oh, you say Bruce Lee. I mean, they made seven American ninjas, dude. Yeah. Yeah. American ninja. One to four classics. It was, yeah, it's, it's big stuff, right? Like those played all the time. I remember those being on a lot. I, I didn't know that there were five to seven though. Now I'm going to have to find them. I think they kept making them like not if you can if you can get a profit off something like I'm sure as soon as it goes in the like somebody will start releasing new ones as soon as it enters the public domain. Just with this slight detour because they're talking about tactical shovels in the in the chat, which is just fantastic. Uh, in a in a game of mine, just to bring it, just I'm sorry to bring it back onto RPG. That's purely incidental, uh, but they had like a, a vehicle uh, which was. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name, but it was like a tact it was a dwarven assault and trade vehicle or something like that. It had a name that was an acronym like that, but it was basically trade and assault vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a tactical shovel. Alright, I just looked it up. Apparently there were five American ninjas. They they didn't make a six and a seven? No, the last one was 93. Uh, American Ninja 1 through 4 actually used uh, regular numbers, 1 through 4. American Ninja 5 was Roman 5. 2 was Ninja... <laughs> two was the con- A bold move. 
to yeah. change the numbering once you've yeah. reached your fifth movie. Very funny. American Ninja 2, The Confrontation, 1987. American Ninja 3, Blood Hunt, 1989. Now, so we have to cash in real fast. American Ninja 4, The Annihilation, 1990. And then America, American Ninja, Roman numeral 5, 93. No subtitle on that one. Oh, and then apparently there was Lethal Ninja in 92 and Samurai in 92. They were not technically sequels. Nah. (laughs) I like that tactical shovel. And and it looks like it has a bottle opener built into it, too, so that's even better. There you are. You're out there working in the field. You need to pop open your beer. Break out the shovel. I want to like it, but something about having those tools being so tiny compared to half of the thing feels off to me. Well, Dainty little screwdriver on top of that big shaft. Oh, yeah, there you go again, Frank. This thing's something because of his aesthetics. Yeah, but she you now. Uh, there's not. I don't. I don't have any call for a tactical shovel in my life, guys. No, you know what? I don't either. But it's still something that you know. In the back of my mind, I'm like, well, that would be perfect to throw in my trunk uh, with my uh, my go kit. You know, if uh, New York City full of zombies, I can take out yeah. my have my tactical shovel in my trunk, ready to go. You're not my, wrong. Uh, yeah, along with my, you know, NASA. You know, thin silver plastic blankets and uh, a water filter. Come on. And now you've got me thinking. Yeah, you know, and it's a bottle opener. I, I'm sorry, the bottle opener itself is just so damn. What's a safety hammer compared to a regular hammer? Uh, good question. Uh, does it mean that you can't hit your finger? Because I, I, I'd love that because I hate hammering. I mean, just looking at it, I, I still feel that there's there's enormous finger-hitting potential built in there. Yeah. Uh, I do too, but... And it, it looks like... Uh, you know, actually, it might be good for gardening too. Those That that shovel looks pretty sharp. And my front what do you need the hex driver for? Like what? What wilderness event is gonna? You're like, oh man! I wish I had a quarter inch hex driver right now. Well, you, well, you got to repair your car. Come on, everybody. Knows but no, you I, do you not have like a jack in your car. <laughs> you know, listen. You might be wandering the woods, come across. This is unlikely. This story is already very unlikely. I find myself outside and in the woods. There's a very low chance of this happening. Even in Arkansas. Uh, That includes an axe, hex driver, serrated knife, wire cutter, hoe, harpoon. Harpoon. Awesome. Uh, For all that, your harpooning. Like, I could see that, though, camping, right? You can spear a fish or whatever, but, like, the the hex thing, I just, like, just yeah. come across uh, that in a cave? Can... Yeah, I know. What, what if you come across, like, the, the ruins, the remnants of civilization that you have to get in? We have to give it more functions. So here's the way we're going to give it more functions. 
We can. How much is it going to cost to put in a hex? Free? No cost. All right. You mean it's we'll, cheaper because we're drawing a hole in it? <laughs> we'll we'll save on steel. Well, shit, man. Let's do it. Yeah, it's like uh, and a fire starter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like I don't need that because I have this cool thing that well we it's called a supermarket. So this this razor axe thing they just posted. I don't have to kill my food. I can just go. It keeps you safe and protected. Does it fight on its own? And is there a video showing me how to use my axe, my my axe shovel as a survival weapon? If it doesn't come with an infomercial uh, training you to use it properly, I'll be very disappointed. Yeah, and, and uh, hold on a second. The bottle opener that I'm seeing on the last picture on the Amazon page is not the one that I'm seeing on the blade, which is definitely a bottle. I guess it would be awkward to use that bottle opener on the on the shovel's actual blade, but still. I don't know. I would think that you might find more things like this in an adventuring environment, right? Yeah, I want this for my uh, for my D and D character, man. I want I, I want a multi tool weapon like this. This would be cool. It's kind of like the rod of many things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the robe of useful items. Oh yeah, that's a fun magic item. Very cool. I, I guess somebody in the chat is a, is a fan of like hardware tools. <laughs> I'm not understanding. Are you like are you a corporate plant BTR? Are you are you shelling for these guys? I don't know what's happening. You, you get started with something like that. You get into a Google hole and it's hard to come back out. No, it's true. It is. I'm teasing, of course. Ah, oh, that's I, I like the nice wooden half that's got more of a classic feel to it. Well, you know, like one of the great things about now is that every field has its own you know, like we're we're talking about gaming here. I mean, ostensibly. Obviously we're not talking about gaming, we're talking about garden tools, <laughs> but you know, like uh all communities, they have like you know, we're looking at these tools in there I follow artisan videos and there's like a whole community of people who are like, I craft artisan hand tools and like it's its own thing. Everything is its own thing now, right? They've got their own communities, they talk, whatever you're into. There's some guy out there who's like there's probably a fountain making community i don't know well, there's gotta be but pex pex wants everybody to know that it's time for you to hear about all of my awesome stuff i, I have also just thought of a new awesome stuff and that's the peace hammer just to uh... the peace hammer what's that well i don't know yet but i think that the, the name is the important thing. The rest I can figure out later, but because of the question and the thing about there being, being a war hammer, it's like, so, you know, it just stands to reason that there's peace hammer. What? What's that real gun for? Peace? Yeah, don't make me bring out a peace hammer. Uh, so, uh, normally we do product promotion in the reverse order. We do introductions. So I'm going to go first. There you go. I, I'm aggressive about this because I love promoting my products, as members of the 10 Car Tavern Discord may know. Uh, my name is Courtney Campbell. I write the blog Hack and Slash. Um, I have a Patreon. I also stream on Twitch as Eganarch Artist. I recently had a module published, Irie of the Dread Eye, by uh, 
<laughs> um, there's no lotion, Pex. Uh, I, I uh, recently um, had a novel published by Autark called Irie of the Dread Eye. It's been exceedingly well-reviewed. Um, and when you buy it, it makes petty people angry. So be sure you do that. And um, I've got a book coming out soon from Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Soon, I hear from my publisher, is a few months. And it is uh, called In a Deadly Fashion. And it takes place in the 17th century Seville. And it's a mystery about uh, a clothier whose customers all appear to be dying from his cursed clothing. And so be sure and check that out when it comes out. We'll also be streaming for the first time uh, me playing Perdition, which is the clone of those dragons I wrote, this Tuesday uh, on Twitch at 5 p.m. Central Time. That's minus 6 GMT, um, 5 p.m. And uh, it'll be a really good time. My clone is third wave, idiosyncratic. It communicates the setting through the structure and the rules and also i've been running games for a long time so it should be really entertaining we've got a bunch of entertaining people and so if you're looking to watch me run some DD, which i know there are some people who are uh come check that out and i'm going to stop talking now i'm going to post some links in chat that was a really good pitch and that's super hard to follow <laughs> just give it a moment to to let that sink in i think oh man he's prepared he's had those prepared in advance shit i didn't think of that <laughs> no it's cool man it's cool I, this is my job like you have a day job this is what i do for a living and, and you can't do it if you don't love your so you gotta self-promote right that's how you gotta succeed and so all you out yeah. there that want to see me succeed you make sure you check out my patreon check out my storefront see if there's something new there i tell you people love it everything i write gets like five stars four and a half stars five stars so check it out i don't have any complaints and and his voice gets smoother as he continues <laughs> i still don't know what i'm doing here awesome Okay, well, I'm, I'm Frank. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, I can be found on motocross.com where I used to do a lot of blogging or a fair amount of blogging. I haven't been doing quite so much in the last few months because I've been deep, deep, deep in the layout hells uh, for a very long time. That is now finished and the flagship product is a game called Hypertolerance. If you want to hear a bit about it, there's a, um, I was going to say Riverside, but I meant Tavernside. Uh, fire, fireside tavern chat with Eric from a little while back, uh, where I talked about it. But it is its tagline is science, fantasy, adventure, role play in the future of old. So it is very much like a uh, swords and planet type uh, or swords and sandals meets ray punk type game, which uh, we invented from my game group and I because we wanted to play a whole bunch of various modules that I've got on my shelves that all have nothing to do with one another. I come in varying settings and we looked for a way to string those all together. Uh, the idea came, but then the, the rule system took a bit longer so that I was, we didn't really know what we could do, what we could really use to make that seamless. So we decided to create, well, I decided to create one in the end. Um, and we iterated on it for about a year and now we've been playing lots and it's super, super crazy. You can play like loads of random uh, critters in it, and it's very compatible with um, 
with OSR and uh, and D&D and stuff like that. You can just pick up modules pretty much from anything like that and convert them on the fly. It's also very, very for very, very lazy GMs. From the GM side of things, there's very little to do, and it's very player-facing. So the players have got like half of the book is just powers for them that they can dive into and stuff, and and those are quite freeform. Uh, so again, as a GM, you can just do what you do best, and that's make shit up. Yeah, uh, I've got a couple of adventures out, not strictly speaking for hyperdelirants. They're just for uh, they're just system neutral. They are also like, incredibly silly. And that's it. In two weeks, 25th of May, the book comes out. A week later, I'll be at UK Games Expo with a team of uh, people, where we've well, got a team of people, some friends, where we'll be demoing the game and selling the books. Yay, that's me, and I'll post some links. Yay! Uh, I'm Eric Tenkar. Uh, if you're listening to this live, we're on uh, Tenkar's Tavern Discord server. Uh, some of you might know me from uh, Tavern Chat, which is a daily podcast. We are Five episodes away from 365 daily episodes. So, yeah, coming up on the one-year anniversary of that. Holy. Uh, also, the Ten Cars Tavern blog, which at the end of the month is going to have, I believe, its 11th anniversary. Uh, that's also pretty much daily. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't produce much in the way of uh, content at the moment because way too busy doing this other community stuff. So join us here on Discord. Uh, you can join us on Facebook at the uh, Tank Cars Tavern Facebook group and uh, just enjoy uh, a great community. And I really appreciate everybody who listened in today and uh, is listening later. Thank you. Is this where we hand it to Pex? Apex desperately wants you to mention the Discord, the Ten Car Tavern Patreon. Oh, the, the Ten Car. Okay, yes, we also have a Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Ten Cars Tavern, uh, and you can support whether it's the podcast, the blog, uh, the Discord server. You, you you basically are going to be supporting it all. We have plans coming up uh, for all things tavern related. Uh, and Pex is a, certainly a driving force behind that. And you don't have to hurt me now, Pex. Or maybe you do, but uh, so much stuff going on. So many balls in the uh, air. I can't give you dates on anything just yet, but good plans are certainly in the works. And no, no peace hammer, dude. No peace hammer. All right. Now we shall unmute the audience for live Q&A. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, I'm sure people would give you money if they knew where to put it. Just saying. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be, I, I, I get so focused on the other stuff that, you know, yeah. I, 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 yeah, the whole money thing, yeah. Pex, if you wield the peace hammer, make sure you wield it correctly for when you're dealing with uh, armored opponents. Spike first. So noted. Again, useful daily knowledge. So yes, if you have questions, feel free to ask away. If you are uncomfortable talking, you may type your question and one of us will answer it. I encounter at least zero armored people every week.
I, it's spring here, and with spring come a lot of medieval markets and uh, corresponding uh, plate armor wearing uh, people. So I can't say the same. I'm in New York City. We just get weirdos. <laughs> I just want to pay rent, Pex. I don't know what this make it rain thing is all about. Yeah, if, it, if it rains money, then everybody else can pick it up, too. Something wrong with that. Not if you're protecting it with the peace hammer. I created something there, didn't I? Yes. It's going to be a thing now. It's okay. It's Creative Commons license. We'll be fine. There you go. Uh, pay royalties now? Damn. Oh, nice shovel picture there. That's a tactical shovel for you. Thank you. Well, here's a question for Tinkar. So yes. When are we going to get together and work on uh, that new website we talked about a while ago? Uh, I'm hoping that on on my side, I got a lot of uh, crap I got to handle. Nothing bad, but it's time consuming on the personal side. But that should all be wrapped up uh, probably uh, end of this month. So. Hopefully, I can start putting effort into that in June and get it up and running uh, sometime after North Texas. Cool. Yeah, that'd be a good time to do it. And then we can discuss that stuff in, in person at North Texas. Okay, oh. Forrest Gump. So we have a question in the chat, which is where to source Pride and Prejudice, Sense and, Sens Sense and Sensibility style 18th century dialogue for aristocratic nobles in a fantasy world. I mean, uh, just my first thought would be in original texts, I guess, but um, you can probably Google best quotes from those movies. Um, hey, unless you're looking after something specific there. Hey, Three Orcs, I've got your... Um, I'm done with the... With the end of the welcome wench, I just have to scan it in. It's coming the next day or two. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, well, no, I'm excited about it too. Uh, do you have Do you have anything you'd like me to do next? That's my question. What building? What What? Uh... Um. There's you said models. you needed. Yeah, there's models out there, real models. Where they, and also 3D models. If you if you Google this kind of stuff, you'll find a whole bunch of websites that provide 3D models in a digital space, and real models, like for miniature models, of a lot of different kind of farmhouses and a lot of different kind of medieval village buildings. I'm at a restaurant right now, and um, but I noticed that there isn't any drawings like that available. You you can buy a model, you can buy a 3D image for whatever purposes you need, but no actual drawings to use for art, for an art object to use in an article that you're writing. All right. I mean, you still can't do it for profit, but you can use it for your own game. Well, you know, I'm looking for 
a poor farm, and then a middle-class, um, fairly successful farm, then a very successful farm with a large barn in the back. Those are three different levels of farms that you come across. Uh, then there's, oh, you know what I couldn't find at all was um, dairy, cows, herds, goats, or cows. Uh, I love farms. goats. Yep, we'll do goats. I didn't find anything like that. I saw, you know, just stuff from the Bible when, it, when you type in herdsmen or something, but that's not fantasy-based stuff. But thank you for um, commenting on the uh, dialogue for uh, 17th century. You know, whenever you read a fantasy book, you know, and then the character in the book is talking to um, a noble for story plot driven, whatever they they have they 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 have a, a superior way of speaking to the peasants and a larger vocabulary, and they also have a different way of speaking. And it's really tough for somebody that's born a peasant, not grew up in that world, an American, not to. I, it's hard for me to um, talk that way, and. I, I can write a speech, and then I can, you know, read the speech. I have modules that are that way it, or that are in. Do you, do you think it matters? I mean, you're playing a game, right? Like, it can be fun or whatever to prepare, like, some kind of hoity-toity group of sayings or whatever. But, I I, I mean, like, I don't know that it's that, imp like, that important that you've add a lot of vows or try and make your speech archaic or whatever. You should just like, people have always talked kind of like we've talked. They've just used different ways. Right. Well, I can yeah. give you an example. It's not necessarily large words. Uh, it's just the way they talk. And there, there's YouTube videos on that subject, but um, for example, I gotta scroll up my page here. Okay, here we go. I mean, um, I can just pull some examples from real life where people talk down to me because I'm a security officer, and there are people that have been uh, working in the same place for I don't care how many years, and know way more about their shit than I do. But obviously, because I'm a security guard, but they're still like, "Hey, you're beneath me. Fuck you." And it drifts well, through quite thoroughly. And I you're more than a security guard, Anders. You're, you're more than a security guard to me, man. Well, I'll give you an example. Um, when you when you talk to a noble and they're going to give you a quest or something, they need to. You need a. It'd be good to be able to role play it to an extent to make it feel like you're talking to a noble, like a, a duke, a, a duchess, a baron, a baron, or the baroness that says, "I thank you all for summoning." For answering my summons, I am Lady Eleanor Osbury of House Osbury, a small holding south of Verbevanc in the township of Penswick. I have a need for a brave few who would complete a task. The success of this endeavor would be a critical for the continued survival of House Osbury. I ask your indulgence in answering a few questions before I select those who will be charged to undertake this quest. The nature of this quest is a secret and I must stipulate that I can not, as of yet, reveal any of the details of said task. However, those who will be asked to take service with House Osbury will be privy to all those I know before accepting their pledge. So that that right there, I have a bunch of dialogue for that scene. And that made me realize I have more need for that throughout my campaign. I, I generally don't read that much prepared text in six months of play. Well, I saw some YouTube videos and the way they speak is quite different. Um, a lot of his English, of course, 
but also in the 17th century, they had a specific way of speaking, and there's great YouTube videos on the subject. I've made a list of some words, but I, I, it's it's you know, all, all the things you're saying are true. I just don't think they're relevant to me playing D and D in a room with my friends, right? Like I agree uh, that that's interesting and that's cool. I just it's not. It, it, uh, I don't think you need to necessarily just a hint is enough, right? Yeah, I I would say listen. Watch Game of Thrones. Look how Cersei talks down to people. The attitude, the attitude is more important than the words that she's saying. I would she's recommend not- both Deadwood and Spartacus if you're looking for unique verbal writers like that have unique patterns and stuff because they tap into that real well. Those two shows. I'm sorry, Eric. I've been interrupted. No, no, that's that's fine. That's and that's true. It's but uh, you know, like Anders was saying before, it isn't necessarily the words that are used but it's the attitude behind it the dismissiveness yeah, totally the the, you are below me uh you you are a peon and you will always be a peon you can say that in pretty much the common tongue as long as you have the right attitude behind it and i think the attitude is more important than the words my humble opinion even even today, that's the same way it is. I work in academia, and it's it's very very hierarchical, and you can you can definitely tell people talking up and down the ladder, and who feels comfortable in which social standings within the university, and it's the same thing with nobility. And they're using the same words. It's just the attitude and how people perceive them that makes the difference. Yeah, I understand that. It's hard to talk that way if you're not used to talking that way. You know, if you're not used to speaking that way, see, I use the word talking. I should have used the word speaking. It's just the way of speaking correctly, and I'm, I have trouble. I don't have a formal education like that to be able to speak that way. It's called forced. I, I saw a YouTube video about it. It's a way you, you learned how to speak English at a young age. It's called forced something, forced pronunciation, some kind of way of only 2% of the English or 5% of England are actually trained this way. I saw a whole, whole YouTube video about the, the documentary about the whole subject. Uh, BTR has a question. For those who use miniatures, how often are you seeing 3D generated minis at your table compared to the traditional metal or plastic minis? Hmm. I, I don't use minis at my table, generally, unless I'm at a convention. Uh, however, uh, I suspect we're going to see as as more people get 3D printers. I mean, I'm tempted to get one. Again, don't tell my wife. I'd like to put it in the yoga room since there's going to be space there. But uh, as 3D printers become more prolific to regular gamers, uh, once you've made that investment in a 3D printer, the printed minis are cheap as shit and no reason not to. So I think that's going to certainly uh, start uh, becoming more common. What's the 3D printer material made out of? They have different materials these days, but for the purposes of this topic, I think it's some plastic wiring that melts and then solidifies. Yeah. Yeah, That's generally more common. I mean, they even make spools of, like, food material where you can make food 
weirdness up with it. Print your own food, quote unquote. Oh, just like Star Trek. Ooh. It's it's there in the chat, three orcs, if you want to take a look. I'm gonna get it scanned in. Oh, thank you. Yep, that's the shape of it, all right. That looks good. Right, like I used the information in the book and the illustrations that were already there along with the layout of the in itself. Like it's got the right number of windows and everything, so it should work really well. <laughs> I bet the rogues and thieves in the campaign will love that. I mean, like, you know, you like it's a specific building. I didn't write the name on it because I would like anybody to be able to use it for any inn, but it explicitly is the inn of the Welcome Lunch. So I'll be posting that up um, this week on the Patreon in the HD version for you. Somebody else, uh, um, Patreon, offered a map of the entire village. It's like $2, and you can download their 5,000 by 5,000 pixel map. And I actually purchased that yesterday. I'm using it for my map and my campaign. Cool. And, uh, yeah, that's awesome. It, yeah, you can zoom in all the way into a bush. That's how high res it is. I was going to say earlier we were talking, I just generally condescend to every other human being because I don't know how to talk to other people appropriately. That solves all my dialogue issues. Um, the aristocrat, they do it with choice of words, I believe, plus the tone. <laughs> it's a combination of both. So that looks good. Thank you. This looks fantastic. What does I think that pick is tramp mean? Posh is another word. It's a nickname for that kind of talk. Posh. Uh, I'm scatterbrained about what I need, so I have to look at my village again. <laughs> you asked me what else I needed, so I got to think about that now. I've been working on it so much. So for running games, um, kind of like how I think it was Three Orcs, the person that enjoys having uh, the speech specified for the times, who else likes adding little things for flavor? Like what I did with my monk when I did a couple of one shots was um, I had him just say generalized, even though it did nothing in game, I just typed it out and put it in there. Uh, cause it was, there was a chat room we could use and, um, it was just a little something for flavor cause he was a very religious kind of guy. Is there anything else y'all like to do like that? Yes, or? yes, 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 yes. I, I started a whole entire thread about this on cannon fire yesterday and a lot of people responded. Um, so it's called, it's another term called flavor text. And I guess that's what I'm getting at is, you know, when you, at the capstone of the quest, the person that gives it to you, you should have some sort of flavor text, you know, or role play it well. But another thing um, is prayers, prayers for clerics. So I started a thread about that subject about um, anybody write prayers or convert real world prayers into the different um, priesthoods of clerics in the D&D campaign, like St. Cuthbert or Pelor or the Binding Light. Um, and, and some people actually responded with some of their own poems that they wrote or prayers that they wrote. And I wrote some myself, too. I wrote one for St. Cuthbert, uh, one for Hextor, and another one for somebody else. But that's just something else I think is kind of cool. If a, if a cleric has little um, passages, little quotes that they can speak while they're casting a spell, like a prayer spell or a blessed spell, or when they're healing somebody, 
or when you're going, whenever you walk into somebody's church, like any random St. Cuthbert church or any random um, Switzerland church, maybe there's a ceremony going on and maybe you can add some flavor text about the prayer that they're um, chanting in the background. So that's, that's another good example, I think. The problem with that, though, is that it's part of the normal thing. It's just like you're not going to do flavor text for each of the people in the marketplace hawking cheese or fish or bread. For people in the period, that's just something that's in the background that they hear all the time, and it's just normal. And so that it's not something that, that they're going to pick out as, you know, as flavor. It's just noise. I think it's cool, but you need to be uh, I like, I mean, what the context I mean, is. I, I guess my question is, is you seem to devote, like to me, I'm having trouble understanding the situation clearly. Like I'm just at a loss. You seem to devote a lot of time, like just from your description of what you're doing into things that, um, at least for me, don't even factor into my prep or gameplay. Like, like I, I'm curious um, what kind of, like what the, the, you, you know, I understand what you mean by immersion, right? When everybody's in the flow. The thing is, is that's very subjective. And doing something with the text or the rhymes, or the it, it's much like, it's a lot like drawing a face. Even if it's a little off, it kind of really creates a problem for your ability to maintain your flow state, right? And, and really... That, I don't think, is the strongest thing that drives that in play. I think that it's stronger to engage the players and, and not knock off their engagement and design before the game that leads to that might be more useful. So I'm just asking, is it a big component of your play or do you just enjoy it as a solitary activity or like what sort of benefit are you getting from it at the table? Well, I'm three orcs here. Um... I've been DMing since 79, and I've always run all my games like everybody else has always have. I've, I've had lectures, uh, conventions in the late 80s about it when I used to run that kind of stuff. Uh, we had panels discussing how to make combat more interesting. We had panels about flavor text. And, and I noticed throughout the years that if you can add something real, like flavor text that was well thought out, I, I, what I try to do is I like to throw it in there along with regular DMing and regular player interaction. So I think it adds credibility and immersion to the game. I don't want to dominate that speech I wrote I read out loud earlier. I don't want to dominate the game by just reading text quotes out while everybody's listening. I want I want to interject it with the role playing. I, you know, add like elements of, of, of authentic authenticity of um, how people talk and act. Or what they see. That's why I like to add just flavor text. Really, I, I wasn't. I wasn't intending to be negative or cast aspersions. I just, just genuinely didn't didn't understand. I mean, like I I uh, it. I just. I think I dropped a lot of that. I think I think that I did it a lot when I was concerned about vampire, and now I'm more concerned about the 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 interesting nub. You, you know, like like what's of what's of note or unusual or something that subverts expectations here. Um, and I, I just, that, I'm sorry. I just think that uh, it sounds like Courtney, that you're talking about a lot of um, uh, just combat. And to me, that just, while it's the integral part of the game, it's just, it's Oh man. Like, well, it's can I, can like I say, can sure, I say sure. that 
I don't know. I, I'm not talking about like any sort of like I, generally my sessions involve no combat or a lot of encounters where they're resolved in a single round. Like I'm talking about the core sort of cycle of you're presented with a room that has so many or an, a scene that has so many interactable objects and developing those interactable objects so that uh, so that there's interest or novelty there is really the core back and forth about gameplay for me, right? And and I write pretty extensively about this on my blog and everything else. It's just the the discovering of the mystery of what's happening with the switch and the weird chair, and or you know when you go out in the woods, there's the the skull tower and the dark forest, or you know whatever it is there is to interact with, and and their interactions and them trying to solve those problems seems to be where I spend all my time. And and even the NPCs, you know, I'll give them a quirk, something to hang your hat on, but I'm not so much concerned with any sort of vacillimitude as I am in what way does the NPC present a, a novel or interacting threat or challenge or choice. So I I, I want to hear what you have to say, Jason, but I just want you to know that I I'm I find combat pretty dull, right? Right? I don't know about everybody else, but like the long tactical combat's pretty dull. I much prefer uh, things happening quickly and violently if they're going to happen at all like that. Well, yeah, the, the combats can be the slowest, dullest things, especially when it's players just going, I swing, I roll the dice. I swing, I roll the dice. But I'm, I personally, as a DM, I always try to get a more immersion for the uh, players. And if you look at something like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you can describe that disgusting dinner scene. Or like the, I posted something that was a drow prayer chant that I picked up from a altered poem. And uh, I just would use that like the Temple of Doom scene where there's the, uh, you know, where they, they're observing the uh, ceremony. So I can understand perfectly wanting to have um, some kind of language that suits your fantasy things for when you're going to go for a little bit of exposition uh, to try to get cab the players uh, immersed in the world that they're in, but not make it so much that they find it boring or uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I, I do think that I'm doing something like because I have access to my own tables, but now there's a lot of people filming their games and I've seen a lot of people play. And so I do think that something I'm, I'm doing things uh, a little differently than most people. Um, so I, I'm not sure that I understand clearly. I mean, I've been gaming for a long time, but where I've ended up, I think it's just uh, uh, um, I don't know if you guys would like to see. Uh, I'll be I'll be doing it publicly Tuesday, and I'm a little nervous about it. So, th three arcs. If you want to cup judge me, that would be the place to do it. <laughs> okay, I can do that. I watch a lot of video. I watch a lot of YouTube videos on people's games. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be running online for the first time, uh, like filmed, like publicly, and releasing it on YouTube. It's going to be a couple hours, and um, like it, 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 it might provide. It, there's a lot of people who I have trouble communicating with, right? Like, cause that's just my whatever. Uh, and um, I feel that it might provide some clarity, you know? Uh, but I'm interested in, in like, we could talk maybe after about uh, what your thoughts are, because I'm kind of interested in, like, because I don't do any of that stuff, the trying to speak authentically or any of that. Most of my people, like, I'll do accents or whatever, but they'll be very modern in my speech patterns, right? I find for myself that um, because I'm an introvert, it is a lot of energy for me to go and do that. 
So it tends to be set set pieces that I, I spend the time on trying to develop, or more likely I'm spending the time trying to develop the background that I want to somehow bring to the table. And it's not so much the individual um, places or people or discussions, but rather how do I go and bring life to the world for everybody at the table so that they can so that they experience it as well and have it in their minds. And each person at the table may very well have a different thing in their mind, and that's okay. We're all we're all in the we're all in the same game and having a fun time together. Yeah, I really like to mechanize that world changing. Like like I, I don't I'm not so much worried about presenting it as verisimilitude, but I like them to know that their actions have consequences and the world will physically change around them, like like in ways that affect them mechanically. And that seems to provoke a lot of investment. I, I have a lot of trouble with the word immersion because essentially it's subjective, right? Like you can't really measure it or talk about it. You know, they even the science on flow state is pretty, pretty um neophyte it's new it's not very far along so i i i don't know that either of these approaches is any like it does there could be multiple successful ways to skin this cat is what i'm saying i think for me i'm sorry one more thing and then you can jump in again three orcs (laughs) um what i'm i don't try to go and have a novel at the table but given the choice between telling a story like a book or telling a story like a movie, I tend to do it like a book and let the players fill in the gaps and imagine things. And if they go and say it out loud, that if let's say that, you know, I say you, you run into the innkeeper and then somebody says, mentions, you know, what's the color of their hair, then that becomes important to them. And I, we talk about it, but it's not something that I'm going to necessarily go and take a two bit actor and give them a, you know, a five minute discussion about, um, I want to, I want them to focus on the things that matter and the things that move the story forward rather than the background noise that is important. But I want them to think about it in the back of their minds rather than, you know, having it as a, a three hour conversation at the table. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've said this many times before, and I know you guys all probably know this. Um, every, there's no DM is perfect, and everybody has their weaknesses. Some people don't cannot make things up on the fly. Some people are excellent speakers. Some people are excellent role, uh, actors and character voice makers, and and some people are better at um, organizing a world and building a campaign and logistics and all that. But it just takes practice, you know. It's something yeah. everybody's, everybody's working on something, and the only way to get through it is to keep practicing, you know. Keep it trying. is re- it is remarkably similar to any intimate group activity, um, for sure. Yeah, everybody like it is, everybody's going to be different, but you just got to figure out the way to love the people you're with at your table. Yeah, I think the key to 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 get it to work, because if you just have some bad, if you have some issues in the way you DM and 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 you have a, if you don't have the right attitude, it's just going to be a sore spot for a lot of people, and people aren't going to like you much as a DM. But if it really looks like you're really enjoying yourself and you're really trying, that's all that really matters. It doesn't matter if you can't do it. I can't do a goblin voice. I've seen people on YouTube video do it. Oh, my God, how do they do it? It sounds like little Bobby from that comedian, little tiny little boy. I can't do it. I tried so many times. It's, it's, a bad, it's just a lame example, but what I'm saying is it's something I can't do. And uh, But if I, if I do do it, you're gonna tell. You're gonna see that I'm trying. I'm having fun trying, even though I know I suck at it. I think that's the only way to be a successful DM. But the flavor text is something I like to throw in there. I don't want to dominate the um, 
dominate my side of the table too long. But whenever I make any descriptions, I like to add a little bit more. A little bit more that the to make it more authentic, and that and I do a lot of um, preparations for that preparation for that in, in advance. I try to, and I have a, lots of extensive notes on like Smithies, um, you know, the mill, uh, the innkeeper, the the, the Wentz, you know, how she's giving drinks to the to the tables, you know, little things like that. Maybe little comments that they might have, the way their their attitude. I, I just try to come up with stuff. I, I get all my information from fantasy books I read, and of course movies too. In fact, the St. Cuthbert uh, prayer that I came up with was directly from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> with that, that prayer that he did right before he shot the guy, <laughs> I got I took that one and I rewrote it. You do you, Three Yorks. Yeah, no, the thing that's interesting for me is, is like, I mean, like, I'm also, I, you know, you said you're, I, in, and I, I'm, I just want to be clear. I'm not casting aspersions on anything. I'm just talking about how I don't, I don't understand, right? Like, none of my prep time is for any of that, right? Like, that's the thing that's really, like, what do you, like, I spent all my prep time um, really it, it, just designing, uh, trying to come up with things that will produce emergent situations. Yeah, and that's a great thing, having a kinetic adventure that's just not, you know, locked in the book, but things change as, as uh, things happen extemporaneous is how I like to describe it. Like, like it very much is reactive to the players. It doesn't mean that I don't have NPCs or like, I'm assuming a baseline level of competence here. Like I know three orcs was running a great game. You know, I've been DMing since like 86 myself. So, I mean, I'm much, I'm younger, but like, uh, you know, playing before that, but like, I, I get it. I'm just assuming everybody here is a good DM. I'm just interested in that. Like, I'll prep for a game like four or five hours, and like zero percent of my time is spent on doing stuff like that. And and so I just find it very interesting. Well, I used to be that way too, but I'm a big fantasy book reader. I read a, a book a week all my life, and so I I always think when I'm reading my books, you know, I kind of want my D and D to be this amazing too. And so I try to figure out ways to do that. You know the, the dramatic, emotional impact of things that happen. I like to I like to cause emotional triggers in my players. Try to figure out ways to do that to make them to try to get them to trigger an emotion in them. Either good. Bad. I'm getting a yikes. I want kind of want to go yikes, right? Like I was in social work for a long time. Like I think that that I think that like you're you're like I I I have training in therapy, and I wouldn't want to do something like. Really, like I, I think that there's no greater uh, trigger for a player than having somebody steal their magic item. Like I'm not concerned about their emotional state. I think that there's plenty of things in the game that will invest people. Like I had a guy taunt my brother and run away, and he would have moved hell and earth to catch that guy. Like, like I, I you know, like I worry. I, I think that that's um, there's boundary issues there, right? Aren't there? Well, yeah, of course. You don't want to go cross the line. I, I don't. I try not to do that. I had um, a character last last summer. He was spending this night in the inn before they went to the keep on the borderlands, and he he was throwing his money around at the inn, buying everybody drinks right in front of that thief that hangs out there. So yeah. So he, then he was dumb enough to get a room on his own. So he's staying in the room by himself with no lock on the doors and a window. Yeah. And so I made all the rolls. 
And sure enough, that halfling thief came in. And what I in the game though, I bought a whole bunch of coins. I like immersion from Australia. They have all these coins you can buy, D and D coins. I bought a ton of them. So I had all the players. I bought them leather belt pouches too. So everybody has a leather belt pouch full of coins, all the money they have. You can do that in the first three levels of the game because after that, there's just too much money going on. But I had them have all his all his coins in that bag. It was, <laughs> and he didn't. He just didn't know what to expect. He learned his lesson. He woke up in the morning. The bag Bag was turned inside out on his chest, laying on that's his chest perfect. when he woke up. That's, <laughs> you should have seen him. That's exactly the type of emergent play, like type of things, right? That you, you should have seen the look on his face. Oh my god! Guy stole real money from him. <laughs> Yeah, Gygax set those things up intentionally. Like, if you look at the early modules he writes, he, he, I've talked about this a little bit, but in Keep of the Borderlands, when the players arrive at the keep, they're walked in front of several shops full of things that are tempting to steal. Like, the path that the guy takes them sets up all these future, you know, uh, gags, jokes, beats, whatever they are, and then the players can play them out. And and that type of thing, you know, where the thief is in the end watching everybody, is that type of thing that I spend my development time on, right? Like, that's the thing I'm looking to do. Like, what's going to, you know, like, what do the players have the opportunity to knock something over, topple it, or, you know, come up with a crazy plan, right? Yeah, yeah, I like, and, and you know, the emotional reaction I got from him was just great. I had, I, I held my hand out, hand over the coins, and I just smiled at him. And he, and him pulling the coins out of that belt pouch and physically handing them to me was priceless. It felt, it felt like it was actually to him. It looked like it, was, it felt like he was reaching into his own bank account and wallet and pulling the money out and giving it to me. And he was so yeah, angry. But- he wanted to kill that hobbit no matter what. He was looking for that for that hobbit all day before they went to the dungeon. And when he came back, he was looking for him. And sure enough, when he came into the inn, the um, the wench says, "Yeah, he was just here. Where did he go? He was just standing right here. Want me give him a message for you?" He was all angry and steaming. Where is he? I'm gonna kill him. <laughs> yeah, I just you said earlier about poking at the player's psychology, and like I don't think I would. You know, if somebody had recently, you know, had something happen, then I, I poke at that in game. Like I try and keep the motivations restricted to the the game motivations rather than anybody individually. Well, greed is the biggest one. They all they all want treasure and power. But that's a choice, right? Like that's the game, right? You present them with like how much risk are you willing to take to get this gold. <laughs> yeah. Personal, I, I you know, love like, playing with players that are very emotive. They're my favorite players, the ones that are really emotive. They don't just sit there and like a zombie, like a, you know, just sit there and don't react at all. They just, they just roll dice. I, I, they're boring for me. I like to find players that are very emotive and very responsive. And, and you know, and, and a lot of them, some of them are unhinged and you have to keep control of them because they, they dominate play. But I, I, those are my favorites because they make the game more fun to me. I, I would call my players reprehensible, but I don't think I'd call any of them unhinged. Is everybody getting the psychological help they need in your group, Three Orcs? <laughs> I do have a, I did have a player that was pretty bad. He, you know, in life, he got kicked out of every group and college he ever joined. So that's proof right there that he doesn't get along well with people. But he's an excellent role player. Believe it, and he actually created backgrounds for his character. The only player I ever met that actually created a five-page background for his character. I got to tell you, if somebody comes to my table with a background, I already have a problem because I don't know. Like, you you get to have your background be what you survive and play. 
Like I, 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 th- I think there is something different, maybe structurally, between what you and I are doing. So I'm interested. I'm interested in your feedback. Well, I just created a new campaign starting next month, and I got five players, and they all have a big background right now that I created That's for them. Crazy to me. That's crazy. So it, it's gonna be hard to kill them. Because of all the work I put into their background. That's that's why it's crazy. That's not. A, I mean, then doesn't that impact the game? It impacts the game, right? You're, you're going to shield them from consequences. Well, you know, nobody really wants their party to die. Nobody. Really I, wants I do. End. I want it. No, nothing's going to end. I'm going to be playing every week, either whether all your people die or not. Right? We got. There's so many ideas. Okay, actually, what we're talking about now is borderline, borderlining on the kind of players that like to play DCC, where you roll up five characters. I think there's that kind of player that likes that. I don't have any problem with it. I'm just noticing. Yeah, it. DCC stuff. Like I, I'm not. I don't kill my players, but there are deadly threats. Like you know, like I don't like, and I'm not. I don't hide them. Nothing is a surprise. Like players choose to engage in the deadly threats or they go for easier threats. It's up to them. But like it's very much open. Like I never hide anything. Hit point totals are open, die rolls are open. What happens happens. Because that's what we're there to find out is what happens. You know, now that I think about it, now that you mentioned it, and people talk about this all the time. There's a YouTube video subjects about this. Um I think there's a couple different kind of games, and I think I'm calling my campaign this summer a serious campaign, and a DCC-type campaign or something like that would be more of a fun campaign where, yeah, you're going to die. Make another character run. It's, well, we're I, fun. I, and I, I think, think two different kind of campaigns there. I really do. You know, well, okay, having run, uh, you know, I, I'm also a long-time gamer or whatever, and I've run a lot of high-level AD&D, which is a very pretty lethal early system. And the reason it's not, I don't think there's two different kinds of games. I think the focus is different. The The focus is not yeah, on yeah, each yeah. individual person's character, but rather the group together. Because the group always grows stronger. Like as you play, they get more powerful, even if pieces of it die. So there's just this assumption that the thing that you are doing is being part of this organization rather than, you know, your individual character. Like it doesn't work as well in fifth edition because fifth edition characters are built to die, right? They're built to be super heroic. Yeah, you're right. Um, I, I'm going to have a hard time. This campaign is more about a story. And I, I have a lot of long-term goals in mind. So you're right. It is going to be hard to kill them off. And I really do not want them to die. But, of course, if they die, then they die. And we'll see what happens then. And then we'll have to make a new character for that person. And I know that will happen. But if it was a DCC-type camp game where we're all having fun playing, then, yeah. Um, it's a totally different way of looking at it. That's all. And I've played both ways before. Sometimes that's what right. you want to do. That's sometimes that's the kind of game you want that night. I, yeah, I ran Vampire for like four years in the nineties. There, I have been an illusionist DM and plotted stuff and had a plot armor and important. I've done it. I I think I prefer what I'm doing now more. But then, of course, I would say that's what I'm doing now. Maybe I'll prefer something different in twenty years. Yeah. So the original question was: is um, how much preparation you do in? Immersion and role-playing before the campaign. Was that the question? The question that I asked was what kind of flavor y'all like to add to your games. And I, I do that, I, but not through 
flavor texture or anything. I do it through uh, almost mechanical means. I mean, that was the whole purpose of perdition. It's like the flavor is all in equipment lists and uh, class selection and uh, like like whether you're going to highlight certain mechanical systems or not. So that 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 to me is what the flavor comes from from the campaign. I'll have to see a play because honestly, that sounds dreadfully dull. I just assume that <laughs> I think you should. I think you should. But but I what I think is you're you're probably involved in the game as a DM, but what you're talking about doesn't sound exciting, but so does a lot of DM prep work. Okay, yeah, but you you understand that like most of my campaigns run for years and my players say I'm like like have accolades about my DMing style. I mean like you should you should look because it it feels different than than I would I'd love to hear your opinion after you watch it. Yeah, I definitely definitely do. I have to see it playing. Where could they go to see you play, Cordy? Well, it turns out that this week, Tuesday night, 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, minus 6 GMT, I'll be running Perdition on my Twitch channel, Agonarch Artist on Twitch TV. So if you'd like to see me play online, hopefully we won't have too many technical issues. And uh, me and some other Twitch artists, Twitch D&D artists, are going to be playing um, D&D. I'll post a link. Oh, yeah, I, I will again. I'll do it right now. I feel like it's pressing a button, the Courtney button. Is that a profile picture of Courtney? <laughs> uh, it, it is. In fact, it is. That's you. All right, anybody have any... Uh, well, Courtney's the only one left that was a host. Anybody have any questions for Courtney before we wrap it up here? Any last-minute questions? Yeah, why is uh, 2005 Star Wars Battlefront 2 so goddamn difficult? 2005. Well, I don't think I ever played that. Bro, I'm getting fucking bitch smacked every single time I go out into space. It's fucking aggravating. What is this you're playing? Classic Star Wars Battlefront 2 from 2005. First video, one. Video game. Like, they did Battlefront 2, a sequel to it or something, and it did real bad, right? Because of the microtransactions? Yeah. Uh, they did... Well, they rebooted the series recently, and uh, it did shitty because... Oh, twirling their mustachios. We want the monies. Yeah. They wanted shekels more than they wanted... Well, you know, you, you reap what you sow is where I'm at on that. All right. Well, I think that will conclude this week's Breakfast Club. Until next week, gamers, take care.